I want to preach this morning on um, one of the Ten Commandments. It's the Third Commandment. Um, the Third Commandment, if you don't know what it is, it's, um, it's in Exodus chapter 20 and verse 7. This is what it says in Exodus 20 and verse 7. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. It's uh, one of the commandments that we run through as we look at the Ten Commandments and most of the time when we think about taking the name of the Lord in vain, um, well I don't know if you're like this, but when I was much younger I always learned that uh, using God's name in vain or taking it in vain was like when you swear. So I'm not going to give you an example, um, but people who use Jesus' name like a swear word or, you know, abbreviate referring to God, but they're actually swearing. Um, that's what I thought this verse was about. You don't um, use God's name flippantly or lightly. You don't, uh, um, you actually should have a kind of a reverence for His name. And that's all correct. It's true. You shouldn't be using God's name in your common speech. You could use it in prayerful word, you know, words, but not just like in vows or in rash statements or in ex exclamations. He's too holy for us to do that. But the thing about actually this verse is that it's not primarily what the Lord was saying to Israel, that they mustn't take His name and use it like a figure of speech or a trash word, it was far, far bigger a commandment and it's far more important than just a question of like speech or swearing. And uh, last week, the week, or maybe the week before, I spoke about how my wife took my name when we got married and I said she did that as a voluntary sign of becoming mine. So she gave herself to me. But as part of that whole process of getting married, she said, I'm actually recognizing you as my husband or in authority as the head of my life. And uh, as in this marriage covenant, I take your name because that's, that's beautiful. I mean, it's not prescribed in scripture. It's, a, it's not done like that. You have to take your husband's surname. You can, Make up your own new surname or keep your old one. But the symbolism there is very meaningful to me to understand that she took my name has a great deal of significance. Now this is actually what happened when Israel made their covenant with God. They became His people and the people who bear His name. Yeah. So wherever Israel was going, they were the people of Yahweh. They were the people of Jehovah. Their God was the Lord Jehovah God. It wasn't some other Baal, this Baal, that. It wasn't, uh, you know, there are many gods in the world, in people's perception. And so from the outside, the non-believers in Jehovah, the pagan people, the, the moon worshippers, the pantheists, the Baal worshippers, they would look at all of the religious domain and then they would say, oh, and there are the people of Jehovah. So they bear His name because they belong to Him. They're in covenant with Him. And so that's a, that's a, the concept here is that God's name is on His people. And they carry God's 
reputation. They represent him. In other words, when we speak about a name, my name, in a, in a human sense, could be trashed, my reputation could be trashed. Same thing. So name and reputation and honor are interconnected. And we often say that, you know, your, your, your name is important. It's like I remember how this reputation could follow you because I was the youngest boy in my family of three sons. And by the time I got into like grade five or something, the teacher knew about Mitchley boys. Oh, you're one of those boys. Oh, you're, you're the youngest Mitchley, are you? Okay, Mitchley, I've got my eye on you. Because I know what you guys are like. See, there's a reputation that goes with your name. Now, thanks to my older brothers, I had to suffer the consequence of whatever reputation they brought upon my name. Because my name was their name, their name's my name, same surname, same family. The same deal with Israel. God and Israel were covenanted together, and so God's reputation was attached to the people of Israel. And God cares about His name because His name is holy. It's the name above every name. There is no other God. He is above all. And so when it comes to God's name, His name is not something trivial. It's not something that you should kind of think, oh well, you know, just, just God, He's up on His throne. It's not significant what I do with my life. And this is actually why Moses, when God was very angry with Israel, God started to say in, in the wilderness, I've had enough of these unfaithful people. I've had enough of these people who don't obey my commands. I'm going to wipe them out. They're going to be destroyed now. That's what God said. He's like, he's angry, he's frustrated with Israel. And so he says to Moses, step aside, son. I'm going to smack them off the earth. I mean, literally, God said, I'm going to take these guys. I've had enough of them. And Moses, in his understanding of the name of God, Moses appealed to God, reasoned with God. He said, God, or Jehovah, Lord, if you destroy your people what will the other nations think of you a god who leads them out of egypt delivers them only to smite them in the wilderness surely god that's going to be a blight on your name surely god that will make you out to be a monster surely god if you kill your own people what kind of a god are you what kind of an honor is there in that and you know what God said to Moses? Well, I won't destroy them for my name's sake. And when God saves Israel time and again, you'll find that He says to people, I did this for my name's sake. He didn't do it because of your merit. He didn't do it because you were worthy of rescue. He rescues you for His name's sake. In other words, when you know God, you'll discover that He is demonstrating mercy in our lives, not because we are worthy of mercy, but because He is showing that His character is merciful. It's for His name's sake. It's so that people can look at your life and say, wow, God is genuinely kind because He didn't smack you off the earth. That's, that's it, for His name's sake. His reputation grows through the gospel. His reputation becomes, ah, there is a God who brings grace in, into the context of our lives. 
There is a God who does us good and loves us. There is a God who saves us even though we're unworthy. It's for His name's sake. It's wonderful to understand that it's for His name's sake because it actually means that I'm free from having to try to be good enough. In fact, in my weakness, God's goodness has demonstrated that He would save an enemy, that He would save a sinner. That doesn't mean I should stay an enemy and stay a sinner, does it? Just because God's so kind, I'll just carry on. No. So, often we see in God's Word, He says, I redeemed you for my name's sake. Glory goes to God for His mercy and grace. He is a good God. If you want to know, though, what a God is like, look then at the true followers. That's... That's what you should say. You want to see what the God is like. Look at the true followers. I don't mean the false followers. Israel was angering God because they were behaving unfaithfully. But look at those who are faithful to their religion. Now we're starting to talk about fundamentalists and extremists. I'm using those terms carefully here because I do believe that as a Christian you should be fundamentally committed to God and extreme in that commitment. You should be zealous for His name and His honor, and you should want to represent Him for who He is. And so what you see when you look at a true Christian is someone who has found the love and mercy of God, and they are over the moon happy with their God. He saved me. I didn't deserve it. He loves me. You know when you first have a boyfriend or a girlfriend, and you just your heart is singing, they love me? It feels so good to be loved. Well, you should feel that way about God, that He came and He found you and He chose you and He made you His own. He adopted you into His family and He washed away your sins and He embraced you and He said, you're mine and I'm over the moon about that. My God loves me and He has set me free of my sins. You couldn't and shouldn't find a happier person than someone who's been forgiven. If they genuinely know they've been forgiven, there should be a huge happiness inside of their hearts. And when you see that God's followers, God's true followers are so happy, so joyful, so delighted with their God, and they follow Him and become loving and kind and merciful to the world around them. That reflects who our God is. Now you can compare the true follower of the true God with followers of other religions. And you can say, is that the kind of God you want to follow? Do you want to follow the God that makes you um, give up like uh, freedom, give up uh, joy, give up life, wear one color that represents a particularly boring view of the world and go around looking miserable? And if you're really, really devoted, then you're willing to just, you know, kill people. That's, that's for the name of the God. It's a reflection of who the God is. And so, when you look at other religions, you can actually look at the true followers to say what the God is like. Okay, that's an important thing. Because actually, where this message is heading, is it has to come around to the question of how are we following God then? How are we making Him look by the way we live? So then we get to... A long passage here in Galatians chapter 5 verse 19. Galatians chapter 5 verse 19 says, Now the works of the flesh are evident. 
So the works of the flesh, your sinful nature, if you serve it, if you worship it, if you follow it, the works of the flesh are evident sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the things, the things like these. It's a whole list of how people in this world we live in actually live like that. Loads of people get drunk. Loads of people have fits of anger. Loads of people are divisive and there's dissension, there's envy. It's, it's. And then Paul writes, I warn you as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So that's the, the one possibility. You're, you're living not as someone who will know God and reflect Him, but you're serving the flesh. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. So Paul says there's clearly two ways you're going to live. You're either going to live in accordance with the Spirit, meaning God's Holy Spirit is leading you and empowering you and guiding you and taking you towards the things of God's kingdom, or you stay living in the flesh, serving the flesh, worshipping the flesh, giving the flesh what it wants, which is all those other things. So here's the thing, the problem with Israel was, many had taken the Lord's name in vain. Many had taken the Lord's name in vain. They claimed to be in covenant with God, but they lived as they pleased. They lived however they wanted to live. So what was Israel doing? They were chasing after possessions, they were cheating on the um, giving, they were doing the works of the law as a bare minimum, meaning just tell me what I must do and I'll do that, but no more. They were calling themselves Israelites and becoming nationalistically proud and uh, at the same time, given the opportunity, they would turn to foreign gods, marry uh, people who didn't serve God. Uh, yoke themselves with unbelievers and effectively just ignore God. So, they claimed to be in covenant with God, but the, li the lives they lived, they were living just like everybody else. Now, when something is done in vain, if you do something in vain, it means that there's no, you don't achieve any desired or useful outcome. So if you, you know, so, so I went to the shop to buy milk, but I went in vain because there was no milk. That's what in vain means. You, you, it's, it's fruitless. It doesn't serve the purpose that it was supposed to serve. So taking the Lord's name in vain means that you're claiming to be His, but it has no effect on your life. It hasn't had the desired outcome, hasn't produced fruit. 
There's no love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, self-control. None of those things, the fruit of the Spirit. It's actually, I'm still living the way that unbelievers live. Then you're taking the name of the Lord in vain. And sadly, some people come to a church or to a religion, even Christianity, and then they take it in vain. They just say, okay, I'm going to go to church and I'm going to be a moral person now, but not really very different from, and anyway, no one will know what's going on in secret. Well, the root of the problem is always on the inside. Words and actions sometimes reveal what's going on in the heart. In other words, sometimes you can see what's going on inside of someone through what they're doing and what they're saying. But actually, the problem is words and actions can also be faked. Words and actions can be faked. So look at what Israel was doing. Isaiah 29 verse 13. Isaiah 29 verse 13 says, The Lord said, Because this people draw near with their mouth, and honor me with their lips. Sounds good. They're coming near and honoring with their words. While their hearts are far from me. Ah, there's the problem. Their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. They don't have a relationship with God. They're trying to do the things people tell them to do. They're following the law as if it's just something that man does. There's no revelation of God. There's no fear of God. So they're coming out to worship with their mouths and their lips. They draw near and they honor God. They're saying the right things. But their hearts are far from me. That's the root of the issue. So basically they, they look like Jews in the ideal. They look like the people of God. They go to the synagogue. But they actually don't love God in their hearts. They're not close to Him in their hearts. So look at how God feels about this kind of deal. In Isaiah 1 verse 11 to 15. Isaiah 1 verse 11 to 15. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices? Says the Lord. What does that mean? It says like... What is it to me that you put money in an offering basket? I don't need your money. The multitude of your sacrifices. I don't need your sacrifices. God's saying, what are you doing this for? You're bringing me offerings. What is it to me? I've had enough of burnt offerings, of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. So they could slaughter more cows. They could burn more incense. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. Now listen, God's not saying he's a vegetarian. <laughs> he's just saying he's not interested in meaningless sacrifices. So he says, I don't need sacrifices. That's not what God's looking for. He's not after something from us. He's after us. Yeah. Do you get it? God doesn't want something from you. He wants you. Amen. And there's such a huge difference between those two positions. And so Israel appeared to be doing everything that the law required, bringing goats and bulls and making sacrifices. And God says, that's not the point. I don't want something from you. I want you, your heart, your love, your affection. 
When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. There it is. The hypocrisy of hiding the iniquity is hidden sin. You're hiding the fact that you don't love me behind your religious behavior. You're coming out for the solemn assemblies. You're coming out for the feasts, the new moon, the Sabbath. You're bringing offerings and God says, and I don't want that. I want your heart. And so nothing of religious practice impresses God. Nothing of performing your religious duties impresses God if your heart is not in it. If you don't really want Him. And so He says, I can't take it anymore. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They've become a burden to me. I'm weary of bearing them. It's like you've called me to another meeting. We get together. I'm sick of this. That's basically what God's saying. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. In other words, now you, you're putting your hands up and you know, you're going to pray and God says, I'm going to close my ears. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. There he, he puts on Israel the statement, you are guilty of sin. You see, they were going about living their lives however they pleased. And then they were coming to perform sacrifices. And they were coming to pray. And they were coming to act like good Jews. And God said, this is hypocrisy because you're just speaking with your lips, but your heart's not for me. Now, James was grappling with this issue too. So it's relevant to people who belong to the church as well. The idea is relevant to those of us who grew up in a Christian family or a Christian country. What is a Christian country? It's dangerous. It's dangerous to grow up in a Christian family because you might think you're automatically a Christian. See, what happened was when South Africa's paperwork, they used to ask us like, um, what are you, religious denomination? And you might be 15 years old and you fill out this form and you think, well, I know I'm not a Satanist. And the options on the form anyway didn't have Satanist. It's not that liberal yet. I know I'm not a Jew or a Muslim or a, but Christian. I'm Christian because that's my background. So people saw, saw themselves as Christian. What, what, what is, in, I mean, Christianity went so far to become so institutionalized in different countries that they spoke of Christian countries. Like you could speak about a Christian school, like this one, but it could be full of non-Christians. So it's important you don't fool yourself that you're Christian when you're not Christian. Even if you got given a Christian name, you know, that's how they used to call first names. The, 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 the wicked, I mean, the missionaries that would go in and then take away people's birth name and give them a Western name and call it a Christian name. It's kind of a abuse that happened in history. And so James was grappling with this, this idea that you could, um, you could be a believer, but you could also be among believers and not be a believer and think 
that you're okay. So in James 1 verse 19, he says, Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. In other words, receive God's word as truth in your life and let it shape your life. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he, is, he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. So there James gets to it and he says, some people think they are good moral people, but they're actually, they don't even have control over their own tongues. Because what? How does the, what is the tongue? How does it reveal what's going on? Because outside of church, when you're not in the religious setting, you say things like gossip. You speak badly about other people. You, um, you live like the rest of the world lives and you don't care deeply that you bear the name of God. So you, you're deceived. Your religion is worthless. James says religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So there's the imperative to live a moral life as evidence of your being a believer. So it's not that doing that saves you, it's that doing that reveals that you're saved. You understand? So James is not saying you can save yourself by works, he's saying that true salvation is accompanied by a change in how you live, by works. And religion can be full of prayers, but no actual care. In other words, there's a lot of spirituality, but there's not actually sacrifice to care for loving widows and orphans. So he takes the test of your faith outside of the temple, yeah. the, the religious setting. He says the test of your faith is not bringing offerings at, in, on a Sunday, it's how you treat people on a Monday. Yes. You get it? The test of your faith as a believer is not how you, how you treat me as a pastor, it's how you treat your employee at work. And, and this is what bothered me immensely when I realized that there's a kind of a respect that comes for spiritual things, but when you misunderstand that God looks right to your heart and doesn't care about the pretenses, this stuff doesn't work. So the one day someone says, oh, here's the pastor, I better put my cigarette out. You know, what? Was God not there before the pastor and after the pastor? So, trying to pretend to be righteous doesn't work anyway. And it's irrelevant, it's unnecessary. There is such a thing as a nominal Christian, someone who is a Christian in name only. And that person has taken the Lord's name in vain. If you think you're a Christian, 
but you don't know Jesus, you just know church and religion, then you're taking the Lord's name in vain. If you call yourself a Christian, but you see no fruit of the Spirit in your life, and you have no concern for God, you don't think about Him during the week, then you're not a Christian. You don't know God. Your heart is far from Him. When your heart is close to someone, you think about them often. How often do you think about God? Now, I'm not trying to undermine the faith of those of you who are new believers, but I want you to understand something. Your heart and your thoughts should occasionally gravitate to God. If they don't, then you aren't born again. Simple as that. We'll talk a little bit more just now about how you can reassure yourself. But taking the Lord's name in vain is basically calling yourself a Jew when you're only doing the Jewish stuff, but you're not actually, you know, your heart is far from God. You praise Him with your mouth and your lips, but you don't love Him in your heart. So what assurance do I have that I have not taken the Lord's name in vain? This is now to make it a little bit more positive. What assurance do I have that I have not taken the Lord's name in vain? Well, are you concerned about your salvation? Are you concerned about the condition of your soul? I've been saved for decades. I'm actually somebody who believes that you can't lose your salvation. And you're free to believe differently from me. You can make an argument that it's possible to lose your salvation. That's not the debate here. Even if your salvation theology is like mine, and you say, I am utterly convinced that I cannot lose my salvation, even if you're in that position, you should still be concerned with the condition of your soul. How is my heart before God? Every believer should carry that concern from week to week, day to day. You should be saying things like, am I concerned if I'm drifting away from God, if I'm becoming lukewarm? Am I concerned if I am praying enough? I know prayer doesn't lead to salvation, but prayer reflects that I love God. If I love Him, I want to go be with Him. Am I under-investing? In this relationship am I forgetting my God and so I'd say are you concerned about your salvation I don't mean just losing it or keeping it but is it becoming richer and fuller are you concerned about the condition of your soul are you alive to God on the inside and grieved at how you have behaved like, I don't know what your sin is, and I'm not going to tell you mine, but I promise you I have sin. And the time that I sin, I look at my response to that sin and I say, does it bother me? Yes, it always bothers me. Am I proud of it? No, I would not want you to know. You understand that my sin affects me, and that is a sign that I care about God. If your sin doesn't bother you, you're not born again. But if you're born again, when you sin, you look and you say, I'm troubled by this. At the very least, this shouldn't be in my life. I sh I'm, I'm, I'm disturbed with the fact that I still did that, even though I knew, knew it was wrong. So then your heart is not far from God. If you are somebody who thinks of yourself as... I'm such a failure as a believer. 
then you are not taking the Lord's name in vain. Because you're concerned with how you are as a believer. You get what I'm saying? So even when you feel like, I've sinned and I've failed and I feel bad about it, that's a sign that you care about God's reputation. That's a sign that you're alive in terms of wanting to be at peace and on good terms with God. And so our sometimes God has even used sin, not that He wants us to sin, but when we sin, He uses it as a way of calling us back to Him. And he's, you see, ah oh, man, I really need more of God's strength in my life. I really need to overcome that. God, I'm so sorry that I sinned. Well, then I'm not taking the name of the Lord in vain. Because I'm going back to Him. I'm turning to Him. I'm seeking Him. Then your heart is not far from God. But if God to you is just an idea, if it's just academic stuff, that's a very interesting discussion. That was a nice talk. A sermon. It's not a talk. It's not a speech. I'm not doing a talk or a speech. I'm preaching because I want God's word to convict our hearts. So these are the tests. I had a, a German intellectual great aunt, sister of my grandfather, and I used to visit her before she died, and she used to talk about God and Christianity and she was very interested she had great discussions about what it means to believe in God she wasn't born again she could tell me all about ideas about God she didn't know God see it's not good enough to be interested in religion or interested in spirituality or interested in salvation it's not good enough you have to meet Jesus and you must be affected by Him so that you will never be the same again. But you can reassure yourself. You can reassure yourself as a believer. So I'm going to read from 2 Peter 1 verse 3. 2 Peter 1 verse 3. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature. So you're actually being born again and God's Spirit is inside of you, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. I don't want to be ineffective and unfruitful in the knowledge of Jesus. I want His salvation not to be in vain. I want it to have power in my life. And so, whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he's blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. Confirm your calling and election. What is that about? What? If God called me and He chose me and He saved me, then He's not in any doubt about me belonging to Him. But maybe 
if I've been living such a passive, disengaged faith, after a while I'll become doubting that I'm a believer. Now God's still not doubting that I belong to Him. It's me who needs to confirm my calling and election to me. I have to do these things in order to prove to myself that I'm a believer. So in that sense, I would say you can demonstrate zeal for God. You choose to do something that a Christian does. And then over time, as you're consistently doing the things believers do, you look at yourself and say, oh, I'm definitely a believer. Your, your insecurity goes away. Your confidence in being a believer grows when you make every effort to put these things into practice. So, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. It means you won't fall into doubt. It's not saying you will never fall and lose your salvation. It's saying you will never fall into a place where you're out of relationship and fellowship with God. You will never fall into a place where you're wondering, am I a believer or not? So you come into a place of security and a place of strength in your relationship with God. And in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Your faith does not rest on your promise, but on Christ. But what when we fail to keep our commitment or our vow? Jesus upholds it for us. This is ultimately what puts us as believers in a different position from Israel. Where Israel took the name of God in vain, their hearts were far from Him, but we as believers, we receive the name of God upon our lives, and then when we start to fail, when you become a apathetic, pathetic Christian, for just that one day or one week, what keeps you in that point? What keeps you is that we are part of a new and better covenant. Where I could have promised to God, I promise you I will never do that again. I promise you I'll never do that sin again. And then I fail. And I feel like I surely am not a believer, but at that point I am saved because of Jesus. Yeah. You see, what Jesus did was when He came to the cross, He took every commitment that we could ever make to God and He fulfilled it on our behalf. And He atoned and forgave us for every single time we would fail. Every single time we would sin, He purchased forgiveness for us. So even in that place where I think, Surely, Lord, I'm taking Your name in vain now. Surely I've promised, I've said, I swear, I'll never do this again. And I've done it again. The difference between us and Israel is that we are in a new and better covenant. And Jesus upholds our side for us. So in one sense, if you're truly born again, you haven't taken the Lord's name in vain, and you cannot. Because even when you fall, Jesus has covered you. I'm concluding now. If you thought taking the Lord's name in vain meant swearing, think again. It's far more than that. When we take His name, we become His we belong to Him, and we represent Him. So as I call myself a Christian, I'm not going to go out from here and live like a non-Christian. I'm going to live for the honor of His name. If I find it 
My tongue is unbridled and I'm losing my cool with people. I'm going to make every effort to learn self-control and to speak words that bring life, not judgment or gossip. And in the meantime, while I'm wrestling over my sin, I know Jesus has covered my sin and I still bear His name. Even while I bear it imperfectly, it's not in vain. And I want to encourage you here, if you don't know God, well, don't take His name in vain. Don't think of yourself as a religious person or a person trying to do a Christian thing. Just surrender to Jesus and let Him come into your heart. Let His love change you from the inside out. Would you stand and I'm going to pray for us.